Some of you may have heard of the, the two cows approach to political ideology. It was quite a popular thing 20, 30 years ago. If you haven't heard the two cows approach to political ideology, today is a good day to learn. In socialism, you have two cows. The state takes one, gives it to your neighbor who doesn't have a field. The cow dies. In communism, you have two cows. The state takes both cows, gives you some milk, both cows die due to neglect. In fascism, you have two cows. The state takes both cows and sells you milk. The cows then die in the war. In Nazism, you have two cows. The state takes both cows and shoots you. In traditional capitalism, you have two cows. You sell one and buy a bull. Your herd multiplies, you sell the cows and go play golf in Florida. In the European Union, you have two cows. The union takes both, shoots one, milks the other, and throws the milk away because quota has been exceeded. They then demand that you fill in forms to explain the missing cows. In an American corporation, you have two cows. You sell one, force the other to produce four times the amount of milk that other cows produce, and then you hire a consultant to analyze why your cow has died. Enron venture capitalism. This one's complicated. You have two cows. You sell three of them to your publicly listed company using letters of credit opened by your brother-in-law at the bank. You execute a debit equity swap with associated general office so that you get all four cows back with a tax exemption on five cows. You milk the rights of six cows and they transfer to the Cayman Islands owned by a sh secret shareholder who sells the right to all seven cows back to your listed company. The annual report says that your company owns eight cows with an option to buy more. You sell one of them and buy the president of the United States of America leaving you now with nine cows. No balance sheets are produced, and the public buys your bull. <laughs> An Italian corporation, you have two cows, but you don't know where they are, so you go for lunch. In an Iraqi corporation, everyone thinks you've got lots of cows. You tell them you have none. No one believes you, so they bomb your country and invade you. You still have no cows, but at least you have democracy. An Australian corporation, you have two cows. Business looks great, so you close early and go for a few beers. In a British corporation, you have two cows, both of them are mad. <laughs> Today, uh, we're going to read what some people think is the early, early stages of communism. And, uh, you know, we're going to read from Acts 4. What am I doing this? Get this other thing out the way. Um, we're going to read Acts chapter 4, where yeah, it, some people have kind of looked at this passage and gone, hmm, this must be how communism originated. This must be better. This must be how, the, how Karl Marx got all these ideas, because the church seems to, to be into this thing of let's just pass everything around and share it all out. 
But before we read this morning, I want you to do something a little unusual. Somebody else, another preacher did this, and I thought it was a good idea. I want you to reach into your pocket or reach into your handbag or where it might be and pull out your wallet. Come on, if you've got your wallet here, do it. Come on. Come on, if, you've got a, if you don't have a wallet, borrow someone else's. <laughs> pull out your wallet. Have a look at it. See if there's anything in there. Have a look at all those, all those blue notes, right? Now, oh, there you go. You've got Wendy's wallet. That's a great idea. Far rather take hers than yours, John. Check out your credit card, although that probably makes some of you very sad because um, of what you owe on it. <laughs> um, okay, we're going to hold on to your wallet while Bryony reads to us this morning from Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5 because you know, of course, that it's all about the money, right? We're only interested in your money as a church. That's all we want. We just want your money. Um, so hold on tightly this morning because we're going to read about generosity and greed. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Where's your wallet? Lauren Holly. <laughs> <laughs> All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, and brought the money, and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit, and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. It may be appropriate at this point to say that we could have been talking about husbands and wives this morning, and so we should wish Neville and Haley a happy 29 years, 29th anniversary today. So congratulations to you guys. Oh, is it next week? Am I, am I in early? Am I in early? Is it, am, I, am I a week early? Am I a week early? I'm a week early. Oh, goodness me, I made a mess of that. Celebrate with him next week. 
This is one of those places in the Bible where the two stories are actually meant to be read together, and yet some guy a couple hundred years ago decided to put the chapter break right in the middle of the story. And so often what happens is you read chapter 4 and then forget about it for a couple of days and come back and read chapter 5 and kind of lose the point that these two stories are meant to go together. They're meant to be a contrast and a comparison between generosity of the church and the generosity of, of Joseph the Levite and the greed of Ananias and Sapphira. And I know that this has a rather awkward conclusion, doesn't it? The question of, does God really strike people dead? But there's some good gospel lesson for us today. Now, these opening verses, as I say, are not an experiment in early communism. This is not you have two cows, we're taking them both away. This is not we have two cows, you're all hippies, we can just share it all, smoke some weed, now you've got ten cows. Nothing like that at all, right? Also, to be clear, I don't think, it doesn't look like it, I don't think that anyone impoverished themselves in the church by selling what they had. There is no indication that they sold everything. They sold some of what they had and shared what they had with others. When, when Barnabas sells his field, we're not told that it's his only field. He might have had ten fields and sold one of them. We don't really know. So it doesn't appear as though the believers sold everything and ended up living in a cardboard box under a bridge. In fact, we read later and later that um, they continue to share what they owned. And you can't share what you own if you don't own what you have to share, Right? So this is not an abandonment of individual property ownership rights. This is just a case of those who have sharing with those who are in need. And it's also, do you remember the old advert about the Rolos? Remember that advert some of you might? It's my last one, but you can have it. I never said that. It was always, it's my last one. And I'm going to eat it. Um, but this is, a, this is a generosity way beyond that, right? This is not just about sharing your little Rolos. And, and I want to highlight in the, in, in the end of chapter 4, five things that, that Luke tells us in the context of generosity this morning. So you can move slides here, guys. Um, the first thing that we find in this whole thing of generosity is that the believers were one in heart and mind. We read there, they were one in heart and mind. This, move, this whole move of generosity starts and springs from this, this unity that is found within the church. It comes out of this love one another as I have loved you. So if you remember my picture that was just up a moment ago, the, the, we're called to love God and love each other and love the world and love our neighbors. Well, this comes out of the love one another, right? We're loving one another as Christ has loved you. And this love generates or comes from this united in heart and mind. And I love that some other translations, and I put it up there, that it's one in heart and soul. It's just so much deeper than just mind, heart and soul. Heart speaks to the kind of the center of your personality. Soul speaks kind of to the, your life and your life force and what you are. And, and, and to be united like that. So there's this connection amongst this church, amongst this community of believers, of this connection of life and vitality to one another. And I know that that's not always the case in many churches around the world today. Many churches are full of differences. 
some churches are split over personality. Some churches get split over, I don't know, music, color of the chairs, flavor of the tea. We get split over all kinds of things, don't we? But what we see in the book of Acts again and again and again is that this church, and now it's a church of over 5,000 men plus women and children, that this large group is united in heart and soul, united in their common love for Jesus, united in their common love for one another. And we've read it again and again and again in these early chapters of the book of Acts, just how they are in community, how they are together all the time. How in Acts chapter 2 you read about how they're devoted to the fellowship. I think sometimes we think that they were devoted to fellowshipping. And there is a difference between a verb and a noun, right? You know that. What's the verb? It's a doing word. What's a noun? It's a th- other words. Doing words and other words. No, a doing word and a thing, right? A noun is a thing. And some people have this idea that they were committed to fellowshipping. They were committed to having a cup of tea after church. And for some of us, that's the extent of it. We're we're committed to a cup of coffee after church. But these guys weren't committed to, to, to that. They were committed to the fellowship. They were committed to the body. Not just to fellowshipping and hanging out, but they were committed to the church. Their devotion was to this group. And so many in church today visit church and attend church, but are not devoted to church in any real significant way. Oh, we're devoted to all sorts of things and activities and events and whatever, and we wouldn't skip those things for all the Rolos in a roll of Rolos, right? We wouldn't skip them. But fellowship with God's people and a devotion to the fellowship, well, if we've got time, if we've got time. And that's not how this early church operated. They were devoted to the fellowship. They were united in heart and soul. And out of this devotion, they share everything. They shared everything. There was a little while after this that one of the uh, church leader guy called Tertullian um, was having to defend the Christian faith because there were a lot of rumors and, and, and the Christian faith was, was coming under a lot, of, a lot of fake news, right? If it was Twitter at the time, it would, you know. And he has to set out there, no, no, this is what we're really about. And he sets out a whole bunch of things that the church is about. And at one point he says this, we are so devoted to one another that we, we share everything except our wives. And I'm grateful that there was a line drawn somewhere, Right? Not sharing my wife, just saying. Just how generous are we with our stuff? I mean, you just had your wallet in your hand, right? How many of you were quite eager to exchange your wallet with a person next to you? Because you saw the blue notes in their wallet. Anyone? Anyone? How many of you desperately did not want to exchange your wallet because you saw the state that the other person's wallet was in? It's like, no ways, right? How eager are we to share our time and our treasure with others? This week, I've, I've actually been quite blown away with the last two weeks, actually, with folk in our church who have contacted me out of different ways and whatever to say, I'd like to give to... And I'm like, wow, people are concerned for the needs of others. 
People are going, I want to help. Our church is currently exceeding budget. We are getting more money in that we have spent than what we have spent, which is a great place to be. And I want to thank you for your generosity. And I'm not saying that so that you can say, oh, well, we've, we've beaten budget, we can cut back. No, no, thank you for that. We're now looking at setting budget for the next year that will come into place in two months, three months' time. And we want to look at ways in which we can extend our budget and spend more money and give more of it away. Because what we should be doing. We want to push on in the mission of the gospel. Now, I want you to understand, though, that in this whole sharing with those who had need, there was no compulsion. There was no obligation to do this. It was entirely voluntary. This is not a guilt trip on people today. This sharing was entirely voluntary. And to make it even more clear that that's what the case was, when Peter confronts Ananias and Sapphira, he says, the land was yours. You could have done with it what you wanted. And when you sold it, the cash was yours. You could have done with it as you wished. If you'd given the church 50%, we'd have said thank you. If you'd given the church 25%, we'd have said that's generous. If you'd given the church 10%, we said thank you very much, may God bless you. The money was yours. Right? So it's a voluntary thing. There's no obligation. But there is in this community this eager desire to share and to meet one another's needs. And then you read this. In the middle of this whole thing about generosity, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of Jesus with great power. And you kind of go, why on earth do we need to know that the apostles testified with great power about the gospel when we're talking about generosity? It's kind of, does it fit? And in one, sen one sense, it's, it's connected to what we read last week of how the church prayed for boldness. And now, now we're seeing that boldness acted out. They really are being bold and they're continuing the work of spreading the gospel. But, but let me kind of, I don't know, maybe it's a little bit of a rabbit trail, I don't know. But it's kind of an obvious point. The church can only do mission if there is generosity to drive the mission forward. Gospel work requires hard cash. As a church, we would like to do a short-term missions thing sometime later this year. We might want to go down to Port St. John's and do a children's holiday club down there again. Or perhaps go up the north coast and lay the foundations for a church building up the north coast. Perhaps we can be really radical and go and uh, rent a flat down in Point Road and spend a week handing out tracts to drug addicts. How cool is that, right? See, some people are like, in, we're eager. Um, those things will cost us. Someone's going to have to pay for the petrol to get there. Someone's going to have to pay for the tracks to be handed out. Someone's going to have to pay for the, the concrete mix that's going to go in the, in the foundations. It's not going to happen for free. This Easter, the Baptist Union... Oh, keep going, guys. Testified with great power. This year, the Baptist Union Missions Department is seeking to raise some money for missionaries, Baptist Union missionaries, in Malawi. Keith and Christine Moller have been there for about as long as we've been here. They've worked amongst the Yao people on the edge of the Lake Malawi. And one of the things that they've been doing is translating the Bible into the local Yao language. And the Baptist Union this year are appealing for churches to give generously to translating and distributing the Bible in the language of the Yao people. 
Imagine you didn't have a Bible in English. Imagine the only Bible you had was in German or in American or, I don't know, right, Spanish. How helpful would that be to you? You couldn't read it. And so these Yao people do not have a Bible in their language. And we're grateful to people like Keith and Christine who have gone out there and seen the need and have witnessed and evangelized and established churches and are now wanting to make sure that these people have a Bible in their own language. And the Bible doesn't come for free. There's a translation team that's been at work in this, and now it needs to be all put together and laid out and edited and whatever else that involves. And then it needs to to be printed and produced and distributed. All that costs. And I just think that would be a great thing for folk in our church to give towards, to be generous in driving the mission of the gospel forward amongst the Yah people. I was with Dan and Kerry this week. Sorry to see they're not here this morning. They run the Ananda Farm Trust and Farming God's Way. And they just have such great plans of expansion and growth. They're, they're hoping that a couple will join them at the beginning of next year. They'd love to expand the infrastructure. They, they currently have a little training hall that can fit 20 people. They had 20 people there two weeks ago, and they kind of jammed in. They'd like a training hall that can fit 100 people. They'd like to send out more and more trainers. At the moment, there's two or three trainers. They're looking at, well, they're busy developing people, so that by, by the end of this year, there'll be about 10 trainers to go out and to teach people to plant gardens and provide food because Jesus is the bread of life. They need money to do that. doesn't happen with nothing there. Ministry in power requires the generosity of the saints. And although it's not specifically said, I wonder if the apostles were able to testify in great power to the resurrection of Jesus because the church had been generous and allowed them to do that without other distractions. The mission requires generosity. So they're one in heart and mind. They're sharing with those who have need. They're ministering in great power. And now there is great grace that falls on the church as a result. Great grace comes upon them. Now, we're all different. I've kind of implied it already. I'm not particularly one of those who likes to give. And when people say it's more blessed to give than to receive, I say, that's wonderful. Why don't you give and be blessed? And I will receive. Happy to do that. But in truth, there is much grace in generous giving, isn't there? And much grace was upon this church. Grace is simply the free gift that Jesus gives to us. And we give generously, and so Jesus gives generously in abundance to us. And I'm not suggesting that if you give generously, then Jesus will give grace, because grace is free, and grace comes with no strings attached. But it's interesting that those who give generously seem to be more aware of the grace of Jesus upon them. That there is a corollary between these two. And I think that those who are generous are perhaps those who have received and understood what grace is. And we become generous because he was generous to us. Our society says aspire to acquire. Get what you can and hold on to it tightly and you will be blessed. And the gospel says give it away. And find that the grace of Jesus is enough. And then finally, fifthly, no need amongst the early church. There is no need. 
And what that is, really, it's a reference back to the Old Testament, and it's a fulfillment of one of those kingdom promises made by God. In the Old Testament, you find God saying to the people of Israel, enter into the land, plant a field, grow your crops, harvest the crops, and don't harvest everything. Leave some around the edges so the poor people can go and harvest a little bit of your field. And if you drop stuff, don't go and scrabble in the ground and make sure you get every little kernel. Leave what you dropped and let the poor come and have something to eat. In that way, there will be no poor among you. And it's a wonderful promise of what the kingdom of God will be like. A kingdom of of justice and equality where everyone is fed, where everyone has sufficient. And that ideal was never reached. In Israel, perhaps during the days of Solomon, perhaps. But it never seemed to be really met in the Old Testament, in the Old Kingdom. And yet here we are, two months after the death of Jesus, and the Kingdom is being met. The Kingdom promise of there is no needy among them is met. And it's wonderful. It's like, ah, the Kingdom has come. What good news. Of course, it doesn't last, and it's not perfect. And we'll see in chapter 6 that there's an admin glitch and a bunch of people come and say, uh, we're starving. We've somehow slipped through the cracks and can you help us? But here and now, there's the sense of the kingdom being fulfilled. Now, having said all of that, I'm not going to send the offering bag around today, right? Because of COVID. Uh, um, I, I'm not going to ask you to empty your wallets. I'm not gonna, we're not going to put the church bank account with a, uh, what do you call it? Q, Q code, whatever, up on the screen for you to... I'm not, we're not doing that, right? I'm not going to ask you to come and enter your wallets at my feet this morning, as much as I would like that to happen, because this is not some kind of guilt trip. It's called to generosity. And the opposite of generosity is greed. And that's the next bit of the story, right? So we have this husband and wife duo. And so while the church is one in heart and mind... We've got Ananias and Sapphira who are united as well. And the issue with them is not that they didn't give enough, just to be clear. The issue is not that they should have put more money in the pot. The issue is that they sold a piece of land for a million rand. And they told the church that they'd got 800,000 for it and said, we're giving all of it to the church. Now, to be honest, if they'd sold it for a million rand and given them 800,000, that would have been fine. There's no issues with that at all. Peter says, as I said earlier, it was your property. Do with it as you please, whatever you want. But what they've done is they've gone, we sold the property and we've given everything to the church so that everyone in the church goes, what wonderful people they are. Did you see what they did? I think they saw what kind of accolade perhaps that Barnabas got, and they want the same for themselves. And so the issue is not that they kept money for themselves. They could have kept it for themselves. They could have kept it all for themselves. The issue is that they pretended to give what they hadn't given. In fact, the word that Peter uses is you've embezzled from God. And what he says is greed is basically theft. You're hanging on to what's not really yours to keep. And so the the issue is not the amount. The issue is that they publicly announced In the presence of God, before the church, we're giving everything. But in fact, they'd lied and they'd kept something. Greed says, I want. 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 Church camp a couple of years ago. Some of you may remember Paul Tripp talking about his kids. 
And he said one of those parenting moments where school holidays, he has three little kids, I think it was three, might have been four, little kids, and it's busy in the home, and the kid's playing with toys, and by lunchtime there's a fight over the toys, and his wonderful insight as a parent was to come in in the midst of the fight and say, right, who had it first? And that resolves the argument. I had it first, great, and it's yours, off you go. And that worked for a few days, perhaps a week, I don't know, one morning, early in the morning, 5 a.m., some sun's not up yet, they hear noise down in the toy room, and they go downstairs to find the youngest in the toy room, and he has gathered all the toys into a big pile in the middle, and he is lying on top of the toys, and when he walks in, the child looks up and says, today I got them all first. It's all mine. Greed takes many forms. We tend to think of greed in terms of food. You know, take, you take three biscuits instead of two. You don't need that much, right? But dictionary definition, greed is an intense and selfish desire for something. Especially wealth, power, or food. Tim Keller calls greed an over-desire. In other words, there's nothing wrong with your desire for food. There's nothing wrong to want a biscuit. There's nothing wrong with your desire for money and to save for your retirement. There's nothing wrong with that. But the over-desire very quickly becomes an idol. And in fact, Paul says that in one of the letters where he says, um, greed, which is idolatry. So let's look very quickly at three consequences of greed in this passage, right? First of all, Ananias and Sapphira are filled with the devil. Which is kind of a rough thing to read, isn't it? I mean, if I were to look at someone today and say, you're filled with the devil, that, that wouldn't go down well. We've read so much in these early chapters of Acts of the church filled with the Spirit. Of the church being driven by the Spirit. Of the church constantly being filled and filled again with the Spirit. It's a bit jarring to read here of two folk who attend this Spirit-filled church who are now filled with the devil. Right? The, the rest of the church are one in heart and mind, and these two have hearts filled by the devil. As a church, we're meant to be filled by the Spirit. We're meant to be guided and directed by Him in all we do. Ananias and Sapphira, not so much. And I'm not quite sure whether it's the devil in the heart that leads to greed or the greed that leads to the devil in the heart. But whichever way around it is, it's kind of scary. And the implication is that if you're a greedy person, who's filled your heart? I think on balance, it's not that Satan filled them and they became greedy. That just puts too much blame on the devil. I think they allowed a little bit of greed to sneak in and started saying, I wonder what could do if we kept a little bit. And that little bit of greed gave a foothold to the devil. They filled, their hearts filled with the devil. Secondly, they lied to God. Greed comes with deceit. Greed comes with deceit. And Peter says, although you've deceived the people, it's not actually the people that you've deceived. It's God that you've deceived. You're trying to pull the wool over God's eyes by saying you need more than what you actually have. Really? Do you need to say that? Do you need to do that? In fact, it kind of escalates a bit and it kind of says to God, I don't trust you. I don't trust you to provide. 
Think back to the Old Testament when the people are wandering around in the desert and manna drops out the sky and Moses says to the people, gather enough for today, there'll be more tomorrow. And most people gather enough for today. But there's always that guy, right? There's always that guy who's like, eh, there's so much, can't let it go to waste. I don't know if there really will be more tomorrow. Let's gather enough for a week. And so he gathers this pile and it's in his tent and he wakes up in the morning and it's full of, it's like my dustbin on a Monday morning before rubbish day, right? Full of maggots and worms and it smells. Except my dustbin's outside, his food is inside. And that whole thing just says, I don't trust God enough. And that's what greed is. I don't trust God to provide for my needs. I don't trust him. Thirdly, greed is deadly. In fact, again, in the Proverbs, it's listed as one of the seven deadly sins. Greed kills. Perhaps not as spectacularly as this, and I noticed you know, some of you perhaps are thinking about edging your chair away from the person next to you, depending on how much they are going to give this week. You're thinking, what if God strikes him down? Uh. But greed kills. God kills both of these people, and we go, wow, that's a bit harsh. I mean, that's very Old Testament, isn't it? And it is. It is a bit frightening. It is a bit scary. It's a physical enactment of what greed actually does. Greed kills community because it violates trust. Greed kills generosity. It prevents the gospel and the mission of the gospel going out. Greed kills the spirit and will slowly rot your soul as we become bloated on the things we hoard. Our souls become bloated and unhealthy and we die inside. And we get spiritual diabetes and cannot abide the sweet things that God gives to us. And we gain spiritual heart disease. Either a hard heart or a cold heart because we become bloated on what we're greedy for. Or we gain spiritual high blood pressure. And we completely lose it when things don't pan out from God to match our greed. I'm not quite sure what other illustrations I could draw from that. I've tried. Um, our greed will kill us. Now see this. Under generosity, great grace filled the church. Under greed, great fear fell upon the church. And that's not a bad thing. Some people like to say that the fear of God means to have respect for God. And, and I, I, I understand that. In this passage, I think fear means terrified. <laughs> I loved my mom, and as a lighty, I feared her. I feared her wrath. I feared her wooden spoon. She chilled out as she aged, but um, I feared stepping out of line. And in the church today, it seems like very few people have any fear of stepping out of line with God's ways. We just have no fear whatsoever. 
It's wonderful to experience the grace of God, but we cannot ignore the fact that God is fearful, that God is fearsome. And if this story does not frighten you just a little bit, then go home today and sit in your lounge holding your wallet with your bank statement printed out and your big screen TV and your designer cup of coffee with almond milk and pumpernickel sprinkles and drink that with your wallet reading the story while you're looking out of your great window into your wonderful garden where your gardener is pulling out weeds in the rain. And feel a little bit of the fear of God in greed and generosity. Two people drop down dead because of their greed at the hand of God. And you know what we should be doing right now? Breathing a deep sigh of relief that we're still alive. Because I don't think we're too different from Ananias and Sapphira. And if you're still alive, it's because of his grace. I don't know if you can see how my little picture flows in all of this, right? It starts with community and out of the generosity of the community, the mission goes on because we're generous and the gospel goes out. And out of, out of this generosity comes the sense of the fear of God as we worship him and it's all about him. And why does all of that happen? Because the gospel is at the center. Don't go home today thinking I better empty my bank account into Chris's bank account or I might die. I mean, if you want to do that, I won't stop you. But go home not feeling the guilt, but go home reflecting on this, that Jesus is generous. That Jesus gave his all for you. That Jesus saw you as a poor, neglected beggar on the side of the street, impoverished. And instead of holding on to his power and glory and sprinkling a couple of tidbits here and there, that Jesus gave it all to come for you, to redeem and rescue you. And so we are generous, not because we feel we're better, not because the pastor told us we have to, not because we're trying to match what Joseph Barnabas did, we're generous because he's generous. And we're not generous because we're trying our best to follow his example. We're generous because we have been recipients of his generosity. If he has given so much, how can we not give? In grace and mercy, he's freely given with no strings attached. And when that gospel truth hits your heart, you will find that your heart softens. And that you will become generous for the sake of the poor, for the sake of the community, for the sake of the mission. We're able to say, because he gave all, I can give some. And just to finish by saying, have you acknowledged that he has given his all for you this morning? Are you a recipient of his grace? Because perhaps today's the day that you need to surrender your heart and your wallet to Jesus, and to say, I am a beggar in need of your generous grace. I'm going to ask the band to come and join me on stage again this morning. We're going to close by singing that um, All I Have is Christ, our new song, to sum up what we've preached this morning. But let's pray. Lord, we come this morning acknowledging our great need before you. That we are beggars in need of grace. And in abundant generosity, 
you have given generously. And yet, Lord, we find so often amongst some of us, our hearts are still so stingy and we want to hang on to what we have and we want to amass a little bit more. We neglect to see the needs of those around us. Soften our hearts by your gospel, we pray. If we have Christ, we have enough. Amen. Let's stand and sing.
that refrain stay with us this week all i have is christ he is my life amen please join us for tea or coffee before you leave and do some fellowshipping with the fellowship